Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your Calls One Planet series. Wildfires, hurricanes, droughts, and floods are forcing people across the United States to flee their homes. Last year alone, more than 3 million adults were forced to evacuate because of extreme weather. Over the next 50 years, human-induced climate change will displace millions of people in what will be the largest migration in U.S. history. So how are the social and political factors affecting the impact of this crisis? In his new book, The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration, today's guest, journalist Jake Biddle, writes, quote, The displacement will create new cleavages between the rich and poor, the privileged and the marginalized. If the government can only spend so much money on flood walls, it might choose to protect wealthier communities with more robust tax bases. If a thousand fire victims scramble for 200 vacant apartments, the richest 200 renters are more likely to end up with roofs over their heads. These disasters will serve as reckonings for a society that has attempted to tame the forces of nature while leaving the provision of shelter to the whims of the market, end quote. Jake Biddle is a staff writer at Grist, where he covers climate change. His new book is called The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. Hi, Jake. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations on this important book. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you. you know, we tend, the media, politicians, we tend to focus on people who are impacted by disasters when they happen. But then we move on to the next disaster. There's very little follow-up to find out what actually happened to the people who were forced to move, what happened to those communities. And you tell so many of these stories while detailing just how radically climate change will erase historic towns and villages, push people toward new areas, and reshape the geography of this country. What inspired you to write this book? So the inspiration for this book came from a a story that I did three years ago in Houston, where I went to sort of investigate the process of a a government program where the federal government paid uh, people to leave their homes in Houston, uh, and then the county was allowed to destroy the homes because they were at uh, perennial risk of flooding. So I was writing about these neighborhoods uh, in the middle of urban Houston that had been completely emptied out and sort of left for nature to reclaim. And uh, while walking around there and talking to the last few people uh, who still lived in those places, I started to wonder, where did everybody go who left? Uh, and that was sort of the initial research question uh, that I wanted to start the book with. And then it quickly became clear that there was a lot more than just one program, that there were you know thousands of people every year who sort of entered this chaotic process of relocation after disasters. And we really didn't have very much information about what happened to them. Right. And we learned so much about the government's role, FEMA's role, the insurance companies, and, and we'll talk about that throughout today's show. But but just thinking about moving on to the next disaster, I just want to read from the beginning of your book. You write, the summer of 2021 saw a lethal heat dome pass over the Pacific Northwest, killing hundreds of people. The following month, a series of devastating floods crashed through the mountains of Middle Tennessee, wiping away whole towns and sweeping children away in rushing water. The month after that, the remnants of Hurricane Ida killed more people in New York and New Jersey than the storm itself did in Louisiana. That same year saw a deep freeze in Texas or a tornado squall in Kentucky, and an urban wildfire in the Denver suburbs. The climate crisis is coming for everyone. I mean, this this is pretty head-spinning. Yeah, I think that um, for a lot of people, especially in more temperate places, they sort of think of climate change as something that happens in the most extreme, you know, the warmest parts of the United States and the parts that are closest to, you know, the Gulf Coast, for instance. But I mean, what I kind of found and what I think is now apparent to anybody who follows the news is that, you know, there's there's degrees of risk in this country, but for basically everybody, you know, you can never consider yourself completely safe from a disaster like this. And I, I believe that last year, close to one in three Americans experienced a weather disaster of some kind. 
I also want to ask you why you use the word displacement, because we often use the term migration to describe the movement of people during disasters or when we're talking about the impacts of the climate crisis on people in Africa, Latin America, and so many other parts of the world. And then we call them climate refugees or the mass movement of people as migration. But you use the word displacement. Why did you choose that? Yeah, so when I set out to look at sort of what the impacts of climate change look like in the United States, it sort of seemed important to me to distinguish from migration, which is sort of connotes a, an intentional, you know, one directional movement. And we tend to think of it as across a, a very long distance. You know, somebody moves from Latin America all the way to the United States, and this is the place that they want to end up. And what was happening in a lot of these communities after disasters is uh, something quite different, right, which is the people really didn't want to leave. They left only when the economic dictates of, you know, the housing market or the insurance market made it impossible for them to stay. And then they they didn't move very far. You know, they moved maybe 10, 20 miles. They moved to the nearest city. They sort of wanted to stay as close as they could to the risky areas from which they were being displaced. And oftentimes they moved several times without a clear idea of where they would end up. So there's this sort of more chaotic kind of churning motion that happens in places that are vulnerable to climate change that seemed important to distinguish from what we think of as migration. You know, we talk about the Great Migration or the Dust Bowl in this country. These are, you know, prolonged and intentional movements from A to B. And it doesn't really look like that with climate change a lot of the time. You know, and since we're talking about language, I heard an interesting piece on NPR this morning with Susan Joy Hassel of the climate of climate communication. She's been working on language and the importance of language for about three decades. She says we really need to stop calling it climate change. We need to stop saying that this is the new normal. She says we need to be saying it's human induced climate change or it's a human induced climate disaster. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I think for a long time, uh, a lot of, you know, standard media coverage about disasters or about sort of climate phenomena neglected to kind of make the connection, you know, that climate change is caused by the combustion of, of fossil fuels and that it's human beings who do it, right? So in a lot of the places that I'm writing about, for instance, you know, there, weather has always been a factor, right? I mean, there's always been hurricanes, there's always been fires, you know, the natural ecology of forests in California means that there have to be fires. But, you know, it's important to make a distinction and say that, you know, there's certain phenomena that we're experiencing and the intensity of the phenomena, you know, scientifically can only be explained by the fact that the earth is getting warmer. And I think it's important to demystify that for people and say, well, we know why the earth is getting warmer, right? And it's because of, you know, coal, oil and gas. Right. And just I, I think it's so important. The language we use is so important here. Yeah, certainly. You also write about how climate change affects extremely wealthy people, it affects poor people, but obviously the aftermath and how we got to this place is deeply unequal and not everyone experiences the impacts of disasters and events like the fires in California or the storms in Florida the same way. Can you talk about this? This is such an important point to make. Yeah, certainly. So I think that the, the easiest way to understand it is to imagine, you know, what happens when three different people lose their homes, right? They all live in a house, uh, but they have different levels of equity in the home, right? So if you're renting, then you basically get nothing. You, people tend not to have, you know, really robust renter's insurance. So if your apartment gets destroyed, you basically don't have anything. You just have to go find another house. If you, you know, have most of your equity tied up in your home, which is the case for most middle-class homeowners, and you don't have sufficient insurance, then you've just lost you know, basically the, the largest asset, the most valuable asset that you own. And so that's where insurance becomes extremely important. Having sufficient insurance is, is key for most middle-class homeowners to be able to withstand these disasters. But if you're extremely wealthy, if you've bought your home in cash, for instance, or if you have enough money to put a down payment on a new home and you lose your home, then, you know, you're, you're probably going to be okay. It's a big financial hit, but you can walk away from your asset if it loses value or if, you know, you've already paid it off. So, you know, three houses that look very similar or in a similar place, depending on the amount of equity that a person has in the home, if they have any, that's going to determine what happens to them after a disaster and how devastating, you know, losing the home is for them. Right. Or in the case of Fountain Grove, like you focus on in Santa Rosa, some people who lived in that neighborhood, which is a wealthy neighborhood, actually owned a second home. 
Yes. And so they were able to go there, whereas people who rented in other parts of Santa Rosa, you focus on one family that had no choice but to leave the state. Right. And in fact, there's a deep connection between those two things, which is that most of the second homes were were being rented out by wealthier families before that happened. And so then not only did the wealthy family have a place to go, but they also, you know, not evicted by force, but they forced to leave, you know, the families that had been renting those homes before. So there were people who, you know, renters in Santa Rosa who lost their homes with, you know, independent of any fire damage actually hitting the home just because the, the owners of the property now wanted to live there. Right. And, and just one more point on how unequal this is. You focus on the Dixie Fire in California. It destroyed Greenville. You write it may have ignited due to a climate-induced drought, but the town's exodus was the product of an underfunded disaster relief system, a dire affordable housing shortage, and a broken insurance market. These same factors are fueling displacement in other parts of the country after other kinds of disaster. Climate change is applying stress to an already brittle social and economic order, widening cracks that have been there the whole time. Yeah, so in, in especially in the case of the Dixie Fire, Greenville was a place where a lot of people moved in search of affordable housing, right? It's very far away from the most expensive cal- parts of California. And while it's not cheap, it's certainly cheaper than a place like the Bay Area. And so once those homes were destroyed, those people didn't really have another place they could go, a sort of next step down the, the economic ladder, a place that they could sort of use as a, a buffer neighborhood or a buffer town while they waited to get back. They just had to search really wherever they could. And a lot of times that meant leaving the state to find, you know, an apartment that they could actually afford or a home that they could actually afford to live in for a short amount of time. And then it also prevented them from coming back because insurers then said, we don't really want to issue insurance to a place that's this vulnerable. If you can't get insurance, you definitely can't rebuild your home. You know, I wish we could talk about every chapter, Jake. Maybe we can have you back again. But for this show, why don't we focus on... Santa Rosa, California. I was actually born there. Uh, The Florida Keys. And then Mm -hmm. we'll talk about Louisiana. So since we're talking about California, let's look at California and the October 8th, 2017 Tubbs fire, which started at a vineyard property on the outskirts of Calistoga. And that raging fire, oh gosh, I'll never forget that because I have so many family members, almost all of my family live in Santa Rosa in different parts of the city. And everyone gathered at my aunt's house because Mm. they never thought the fire was going to actually reach the city. I mean, this was just inconceivable. And in the span of a few hours, more than 5,000 homes burned down, which was 5% of Santa Rosa's housing stock. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the the uh, cocktail of ingredients for that fire was it was a, a perfect set of factors to cause a really, really unprecedented devastation. Right? There had been a, a big set of rains uh, earlier in 2017 that caused a big bloom among vegetation in the area. And then following that, it all dried out and it got very hot. And the night of the fire, there was, you probably remember this, an extremely strong wind. Uh, an unusually strong wind. It almost reached hurricane force in some places at the tops of the hills. And that was what allowed the fire, you know, which started thanks to this really profound drought. That was what allowed the fire to leap over the freeway and enter Santa Rosa, which I think you're right. Most people considered completely impossible. Right. I mean, you do such a great job of really describing how this happened because the freeway was supposed to be the break. That wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah. I mean, and it's, and it's remains, you know, quite unlikely that, you know, it's it's not something that's going to happen on a year by year basis, but I think it's it's uh, exemplary of the kinds of things that are possible when you have these really, really, really extreme conditions that can really only happen because of this intense drought. So once you have the sort of um, background of drought and it gets very, very hot, then all you need is this extra push from the wind, and suddenly something that should have been impossible happened. And as you probably know, in Coffee Park. Most people had lived there for decades, and they just never really thought about wildfires. You can see the hills, right. you, but they never thought it would get to them. And, and you tell these incredible stories about one couple that left their cell phones in their kitchen when they went to bed. Luckily, they had a landline, and their daughter was able to reach them to say, you need to leave now. And by the time they got in their car, they noticed that so many people had already fled. Luckily, I, I was just thinking, what if they didn't have that landline? Yeah, I mean, and there, this was in the in the hills near Fountain Grove, and there were people who who didn't make it out in time. And I, you can go back 
now and look at the hills, they're still completely denuded of, of trees and, and grasses, uh, or at least they were the last time I was there last fall. Uh, it has really, really profoundly altered the landscape of, of that area in ways that I think are still psychologically really, really present for people who've moved back there. Right. So the factors that you describe in Santa Rosa can be really applied to so many other places across the country. You write, the combined demand for homes in the area far outpaced the total number of homes, creating a bidding war for the region's scant supply of available housing. The wealthiest buyers claimed the largest homes in areas like Fountain Grove, which relegated middle-class families like Kevin Trans to quasi-suburban neighborhoods like Coffee Park. Affordable housing in Santa Rosa was scarce, which meant that low-income families had almost no chance of getting a mortgage. Having been priced out of the ownership market, those families had no choice but to rent on a permanent basis. I mean, this is the case in so many areas across the country. Right. Yeah. And especially in California. I mean, anybody listening to this knows that there's just not enough homes here. And when you have a fire that destroys thousands of homes in one night, Santa Rosa kind of represents the worst case scenario uh, during the Tubbs fire where the the fire not only destroyed the most valuable homes, right, and forced many of those homeowners to look for, you know, to go to their second home or to try to find an apartment. It also destroyed one of the city's only affordable neighborhoods, right? So when you have these cities that are right on the border uh, with the wildland areas that are flammable, you have this this possibility that, you know, overnight, basically any place where a middle-class person could find a home in Santa Rosa basically just vanished. I mean, there really weren't many other, uh, more, like more, there wasn't much mortgage stock available in the city that was as cheap as it was in Coffee Park, Well, I want to give out the phone number since we're talking about Santa Rosa, and I'm sure a lot of people have maybe who live there or have family there or remember that horrific fire. Today, we're speaking with Jake Biddle, who's out with a new book, The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. If you have any questions or comments for Jake, if you have experienced a fire, a drought, a hurricane, have been forced to flee your home, uh, we'd love to hear your story You can give us a call at 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. You can also email your call at KALW.org, or you can tweet us. We're at Your Call Radio. So those of us who live in the area remember that after that fire, the prices jumped 10, 20, 30% overnight, and buyers were outbidding each other. Uh, because, you know, so many people just couldn't afford it, but people with money obviously could. Um, The other thing that I think is important, and this is another theme in so many cities across the country, um, you wrote that because there was so much demand in this area, a lot of wealthy people wanted to live in the Santa Rosa area. And if Santa Rosa didn't try to capture those tax dollars, they'd build their homes elsewhere. The federal government also greased the wheels by offering Santa Rosa new money to build a parkway that would arc through the hills. And you write that Santa Rosa really chose growth over safety. Right. Yeah. This was a few decades ago, but it's pretty typical of what happened in a lot of parts of California and the United States in the 20th century. So in 1964, there was a big fire, the Hanley Fire, that burned through the Fountain Grove Hills. And at the time, there was really not a lot of development there. Um, But after that, uh, the city's leaders and counties kind of forgot. They didn't literally forget, but they sort of, it faded. The memory of that fire faded. And uh, it became clear that, you know, the Bay Area was exploding in population. People wanted to live in the hills. And since the federal government was offering money to build what's called now called the Fountain Grove Parkway, it sort of seemed like a, a good idea, right? You can attract a lot of wealthy people, you can attract companies, you know, who want to service those people. Uh, and then you you grow and growth is a, a really strong incentive for cities for everybody, right? I mean, growth sort of is supposed to benefit most people who live in a place. Uh, but that sort of caused people to paper over the potential fire risk, uh, which stayed latent for about 50 years until the Tubbs fire. We have a question from a listener who writes, didn't people have to sue insurance companies in order to get their money? So this is another big part of your book. Uh, Let's talk about the insurance system. In the case of Santa Rosa, you write that 
The average homeowner's insurance policy covers a range of potential hazards, such as burglary, hail, and lightning strikes. Flood damage is not included in traditional coverage because private insurers cannot turn a profit covering it. Major insurers had stopped selling flood policies in the 1920s after high claims almost drove them out of business leading the federal government to step in. Fire, on the other hand, was still profitable for the insurers that sold policies in California, in part because wildfires usually were not large enough to threaten residential property. And then came the Tubbs fire. So tell us what you revealed about the insurance companies, specifically in Santa Rosa. And then when we talk about other parts of the country, we'll focus on on that. Right. So fire insurance is included in a standard homeowner's policy, but I don't think that most insurers ever anticipated that there would be large fire seasons like the 2017 and 2018 seasons. And the claims from those fires, you know, the amount that the insurance companies had to pay out to homeowners were so large that they obliterated about a quarter century of underwriting profits from the previous 25 years. So basically what happened is the companies had to suddenly pay out billions of dollars that they never really thought they would have to pay out all at once because they didn't think, you know, if there's a fire and it destroys a home, it'll maybe destroy five homes, 10 homes. It won't destroy thousands of homes at once. And so, you know, part of the economic incentive for these insurance companies, unfortunately, yeah, is they try to pay. It's not that they try to pay as little as they can, but they they try to enter kind of a negotiation with the claim, the claimant, right? They don't want to pay always the whole thing or they don't want to cover the whole value of a home. So there were plenty of people who had to sue or just argue on the phone with their insurance companies for, for years, you know, after that fire in order to get the payout that they needed. And that's not just true in, in fires, you know, after hurricanes with windstorm damage in Louisiana, Texas, Florida, there are innumerable stories of people who go to war with their insurance companies in order to get the money that they need to rebuild. Uh, And it's in part because the insurance companies kind of uh, underestimated the potential risk of fire. They ended up on the hook for way more money than they thought they were going to have to pay because the fires are just so devastating now. Given what, as you write, had once been unfathomable, was becoming normal, what is the state of fire insurance now? (laughs) <laughs> it's uh, it's in a little bit of trouble in California. So the insurance companies are now, they're either trying to raise premiums or try to avoid issuing coverage at all in the most vulnerable parts of the state. Uh, and the state government is trying to kind of fight back against that and keep the insurers in the market. They're also trying to force the insurers to give discounts to families who uh, retrofit their homes to be more resilient to wildfire. Uh, But the more uh, policies that get dropped by these companies, the more people have to go into what's called the California Fair Plan. It's sort of like a public option for insurance. It's co-funded by all the major insurers. But the problem is uh, it doesn't cover most of the value of people's homes. There's a cap, I believe, around $450,000 or $500,000. That's not an exact number. Uh, and also, it's not very good coverage. You know, there's things that it doesn't cover, uh, and it's very, very, very expensive uh, for most people. So you have this situation where the private uh, industry is kind of trying to step, you know, one foot out of the market a little bit, which pushes more and more people onto this this public option plan, which is not meant to sustain. You know, it's not meant to cover millions and millions of people. It's supposed to be kind of a specialized option. It was very interesting to learn about how the people living in the middle class neighborhood of Coffee Park were able to rebuild. They got the money that they needed to rebuild. And as you write, they the new houses were larger and better built than their 1970s era predecessors. But it, it was just really sh- like sad and shocking to learn that they had enough money to pay out individual customers in Coffee Park, but they were not prepared to pay them all out at once. And the whole reconstruction of the neighborhood dealt a a gut shot to the company's profits. To make matters worse, the insurers didn't have any control over fire safety standards for the rebuild. So the new version of Coffee Park turned out to be just as vulnerable to wildfires as the old one. Right. Yeah. So there was an opportunity, I believe, uh, for the local government to kind of say, we are going to change the way this neighborhood looked. Uh, but because the insurers had to pay out, you know, X, Y, Z amount of claim money to all these uh, claimants, and then they, there basically was a deal made with a, a big home builder that sort of did a, a bulk a bulk rebuild of the neighborhood with sort of standard issue homes. So instead of getting a bespoke house built, you could sort of save some money as the homeowner if you agreed to have rebuilt for you one of these sort of standard issue homes that the builder wanted to build. Um, and as a result of that, there really wasn't a lot of attention paid to changing the way that the neighborhood was was constructed, you know, spacing the lots out more 
fixing the fact that the fences are extremely flammable and they connect all the units. Um, so again, it's kind of unlikely. I mean, you know, it would take another huge fire for Coffee Park to burn again. It is insulated by the freeway from most places. But they didn't pay that much attention to retrofitting the neighborhood long term. And I think a lot of people were, they wanted to get back to their home so bad. And the insurance companies wanted to sort of save money where they could that basically people ended up kind of doing a a bare bones rebuild of that neighborhood. They didn't end up getting that much more resilient to fire, even though some of the homes are a little stronger than the, the 1970s era ones. Wow. I, I had I had to just wonder, what, why isn't the government requiring these fire safety measures? Do you know, I mean, how much would they cost? How much additional money would they cost? And so it really depends on the home, but I mean, it's not enormously expensive. And we do basically know what works. The trouble is that the federal government can't really enforce you know, there's, it would take an act of Congress to um, make that contingent on receiving money from FEMA, right? So FEMA can give out money, you know, to help places rebuild. And then insurance companies, insurance companies really want people to take these steps. And part of what the state of California has tried to do is force the insurers to give homeowners a discount if they do take these steps and they do fund those uh, retrofits themselves. But it's difficult to go uh, from the top down and say, I don't think FEMA has the authority to say, in order to receive recovery money, you must rebuild your home in this way. The best that the federal government can kind of do is give out money, and the state has done this as well. They give out a lot of grants uh, to homeowners who want to do this, and they're trying to ramp that up. And that's basically the the way that they're hoping to do it. They offer a big carrot for people who want to take these uh, steps, you know, get dual pane windows, change their roof materials, clear defensible space around their house. Before we go to break, I I just wonder, after all the research that you did, specifically in a state like California, where we have a major housing crisis, I mean, you write about our homeless crisis in the chapter about Santa Rosa, given that there is a call to build, 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 what are your thoughts on that after doing this research, given the climate crisis, the water crisis that we have in this state and beyond? What really stood out for you based on the research that you did? It's a really, really difficult question. I mean, I think there's no doubt that California, you know, needs more homes and it's up to lawmakers to find a way uh, to build those homes. But there are questions about where exactly they should be built. You know, in a, in a city like San Francisco, for instance, you know, it's really possible to do, you know, really, really dense and uh, water efficient and energy efficient construction. You know, if you kind of build up, build mid-rise buildings that could kind of, you know, uh, provide a lot of affordable housing. There's nothing really wrong with that from a climate perspective. But when you talk about building sort of subdivisions all the way up in these hills or building in places that have, you know, a history of sort of unstable water access, then, yeah, I think it's right to ask questions about um, whether that's appropriate. But the thing is, there's also ways to, to build communities to make them, you know, safe, right? Like you can build subdivisions with enough defensible space, again, to protect against most wildfires. And you can make sure that the new homes that you build are safe to fire. But there are places where, you know, you do kind of have to ask questions about, is it really appropriate to build here? There's also a lot of places where it should be okay. Today, we're joined by Jake Biddle, staff writer at Grist, where he covers climate change. His new book is called The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. Last year, more than 3 million adults were forced to evacuate their homes because of extreme weather. Over the next 50 years, human-induced climate change will displace millions of people in what will be the largest migration in U.S. history. Jake, is there any way to know how many people actually left California because of that Tubbs fire? Uh, we do have statistics for how many people moved out of California over a certain period of years, but we definitely don't know how many people left as a result of the Tubbs fire. I mean, it, the other difficulty, which is sort of touched on in the book, is that we don't know whether people are leaving on a temporary or permanent basis. A lot of people don't actually change their permanent address, but they end up having to live with a family member or a friend. I mean, it would certainly be in the thousands from Sonoma County and, and Napa who left the state on a temporary or permanent basis. Mm. Uh, but it's not exactly clear how many are going to end up leaving California for good. There's also a lot of people who just move out of California because they don't want the experience of living through the fires, even though they didn't lose their home. Right? I think a lot of people from the Bay Area, after the 2020 wildfires, when the sky turned red and there was smoke in the air, they just didn't want to live here anymore. And we also don't really have a good way of assessing how many people left for those reasons. But it's it's a large number. Well, after the break, we will talk about the patterns of displacement that will emerge in the coming decades. This is Your Calls One Planet series. We'll be back after this.
This is Your Calls One Planet series. I'm Rose Aguilar. Today we are spending the hour with Jake Biddle, a staff writer at Grist, who is out with a new book called The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. Over the next 50 years, human-induced climate change will displace millions of people in what will be the largest migration in U.S. history. If you have a question or a comment for Jake about the Great Displacement, you can give us a call at 866-798-8255. If you or someone you know has been forced to flee because of the climate crisis, we'd love to hear from you. You can also email your call at KALW.org or tweet us. We're at Your Call Radio. Jake, you write that the migration will not be a linear movement from point A to B, and neither will it be a slow march away from the coastlines and the hottest places. Rather, the most vulnerable parts of the U.S. will enter a chaotic churn of instability as some people leave, others move around within the same town or the city, and then still others arrive only to leave again. So can you talk more about that? Right. So it it is, I think that, The main thing to remember is that when people move in the aftermath of these big disasters, they basically move for as short a distance as they possibly can to, you know, maintain their existing jobs or their social networks, or they want to stay in a place that they tend to like. They tend to have attachments uh, to the places that they're coming from. And so as a result of that, there's a sort of uh, shuffle almost or like a hopscotch around. People tend to move to a place initially. They don't have a lot of money after the disaster, so they maybe find the cheapest apartment they can for a few months or maybe they're getting temporary assistance from FEMA, then they look, you know, maybe they've, the disaster has convinced them that they should live in another place. They want to move a little bit farther away from the water. But I think the main thing is that people don't necessarily, after a disaster, say, I don't want to live in this place anymore because it's vulnerable. That's not, it doesn't tend to be the overriding sentiment. And so the result of that is you get this sort of, um, I always refer to it as a churn of people moving and moving and moving not necessarily migrating away from the most vulnerable places. You also write that when you look at the role of the government, FEMA lacks the resources to help the communities hit by disasters achieve any sort of long-term recovery. The agency spends most of its money on building things back exactly the same as they once were. Right. Yeah. So because of the statutes that govern FEMA's operations, right, all the money that it tends to spend or the vast majority of it, it comes to a place that's just been hit by a disaster and it distributes individual grants uh, and temporary assistance to people who want to either live, you know, another place for 12 or 18 months or want to just build back their home. Right. Or they want to. And so FEMA can also reimburse local governments for the cost of fixing a road up or, you know, making sure that the, the city hall gets back in shape. But there's not any statute that says, you know, FEMA should try to make these places more resilient to disasters. It's a recovery agency, right? And it just tries to wind back the clock. It can only spend a small percentage of its uh, annual budget each year on projects that would sort of help prepare for future disasters, right? So maybe you take a shoreline and you add sort of natural interventions to it to make it better capable of absorbing flooding. Or maybe you help people move back from the water, right? Things like that. Or maybe you help uh, homes get more resilient to wildfire. Like that is a very, very small proportion of what FEMA is authorized to spend. And the, the bulk of its money, which is still not enough money, is just goes toward giving people money to, uh, to go back to exactly where they were. And that's because of a few a statute that's a few decades old. You also write that the Biden administration has funneled billions of dollars into new programs that could help communities armor against future disasters, but progress has been slow. Can you tell us more about that? Right. Yeah. So there's there's two programs that FEMA has. One predates the Biden administration uh, and was sort of puttering along. And then another one is is novel from the past few years that Congress has authorized. And basically all they do is, you know, instead of a community just getting money in the first few months after disaster, a, a town or a city or state can apply for a grant, say we really want to do this project to maybe we want to relocate our wastewater treatment plant to higher ground. You know, maybe we want to take this park and make it into a, a natural wetland to absorb flooding. These are extremely cost effective projects, right? So the statistic that often gets bandied about is that for every $1 you spend on so-called resilience measures like this, you save $6 uh, in future damages, right? So the government can basically save itself money 
by spending preemptively like this. And it's not something we've done very much in the past. In fact, we've only been able to do it statutorily for about three decades. But this is something that FEMA has long wanted to do more of. It's something that Congress has kind of come around to, and the Biden administration is trying to to push money into these. But because it's a federal grant process, you know, it takes years for this money to get actually distributed, years more for the projects to be built. And then for most of them, we don't exactly know uh, whether they're working or how well they're working yet because they are so new. You also write that lawmakers could ramp up programs that protect against floods and fires. They could give people money to relocate from vulnerable homes or to find new jobs if climate change makes their old jobs impossible or just too dangerous. Yeah, certainly. So this was the the buy-up program that I was discussing at the top of the hour. It's something FEMA has experimented with a little bit in places like Houston. But basically, instead of giving people money to build back their homes, you give them a cash stipend for the value of their home. And they leave their home voluntarily, uh, and then they find somewhere else to live. And then the government can uh, destroy the home that was there and basically take a property out of the floodplain, reduce future damage. So this, is, you know, this, this program does have critics, and there are uh, shortcomings to it. A lot of people don't end up getting enough money from their uh, buyout payment uh, to find a new home that's affordable. But it, it is a, a kind of blueprint that I think the government is going to have to take a, a big look at over the next few decades, right? There's certain places where it just doesn't really make sense to keep rebuilding over and over and over again. You know, I think the worst uh, case scenario for FEMA is that they've, in some cases, paid to rebuild the same home, you know, upwards of a dozen times because mm-hmm. it keeps flooding. And so in those cases, it really makes the most sense to, to give the homeowner a fair payout and ensure that they can find their way to a safe place and then try to get that property, which probably never should have been built there, out of the floodplain. Wow. Jake Biddle is author of the new book, The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. Jake is a staff writer at Grist, where he covers the climate crisis. Let's hear from a caller. Let's go to John in Berkeley. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hello, Rose. Thank you so much. Hello, Jake, and hello, everyone listening. My request is that we recognize that the climate has changed. Don't say climate change. Don't think climate change. The changed climate. It's even the title of your book. Past tense. The oceans will rise. And the great displacement will be the people in Africa and South Asia that starve. And no water. Mass migration leads to totalitarianism, which leads to war. Mm. Well, thank you, John. We talked a bit about the importance of language earlier in the show, and uh, we'll definitely continue to do shows about that because it is so, so important. So thank you for calling in. Uh, We have an email from Lee in Santa Rosa who says, have you heard about fire gel, which can be sprayed on houses to prevent fires jumping from one house to another? Yes, I have heard about that, uh, and it does seem like one potential way uh, of armoring homes. I think that another and sort of potentially uh, more foundational strategy, right? There are sort of two uh, ways that the government likes to uh, prevent this kind of damage. One is that we know, you know, with certain materials for walls, windows, and roofs, that we can stop homes from incinerating. And then the other is defensible space, right, which I think is something that the state of California has tried to put a lot of money and a lot of emphasis on, right, which is that you just kind of clear the most flammable flammable vegetation, excuse me, uh, and then give the fire a sort of break, a wall that it can't burn its way across, right, kind of creating natural versions of that that 101 freeway that was supposed to protect Coffee Park and did protect Coffee Park from many wildfires in the past. Well, thank you for that question, Lee. Um, Let's talk. We've got about 15 minutes left. This is going by so fast. Just quickly about Florida, because you write that the thousand odd islands that make up the Florida Keys are the first flock of canaries in the coal mine of climate change. In the five years since Hurricane Irma, The residents of these islands have been forced to confront a phenomenon that will affect millions of Americans before the end of the century. Their present calamity offers a glimpse of our national future. And it's just incredible to learn that many of the islands, perhaps all of them, could go underwater altogether by the end of the century. You write more so than almost any other place in the country, they are doomed. 
Yeah, so I'm from Florida originally, uh, and the Keys are are very, very close to my heart. It's one of my favorite uh, places in the world. And mm-hmm. in the worst-case scenarios for sea level rise, right, assuming that we don't get global warming under control by the end of the century, you know, you could see six-plus feet of sea level rise by 2100. And in that case, a lot of islands would be either subject to permanent, you know, inundation. They would just be underwater. Or the, you know... Uh, frequency of flooding would get so extreme that it would be very, very difficult uh, for most people to live there, even if they elevated their homes, right? So ordinarily, when a big hurricane happens, right, it takes three to five years for a community to recover. And that was also the case uh, after Irma in the Keys. But since Irma, you know, while that five-year recovery process was going on, the impacts of sea level rise have started to become clear in a lot of the Keys. And so even as you're trying to rebuild from this devastating storm with 150 mile per hour winds a lot of people are now seeing their neighborhoods flood in a sort of routine way the tides creep in 30 or 40 days out of the year in the autumn when the tides are highest and this is really really psychologically difficult for people to deal with right it's one thing to come back and find that your home got you know blown out of the water or blown into the water by the wind it's another thing to live in a place that, you know, in a home that didn't get destroyed and then find, the, you know, you can't really drive out of your neighborhood every week because <laughs> there's water, you know, where your car is supposed to go. This is a, you know, it's an extreme case. The, the islands are very, very low to the ground. They're in the middle of the ocean uh, and they haven't been inhabited for all that long. But they are sort of like a, a, a canary in the coal mine for what could happen in other places if climate change gets continually worse. You write about people who love this area like you do, and it was so interesting just to learn about people who have made Big Pine their home. You know, they just love the land. They love the community. They're working really hard, for example, um, on, on farms. And, you know, a hurricane comes, and they go back, and they don't even know where they are. I mean, it's just it's devastating. And as you write, and it was so, so di- difficult to learn that, in this particular area, at least a dozen people committed suicide because it was all just so so hard to take. Yeah, this was one of the last, Big Pine Key was one of the last affordable places in, in the Keys, which has become quite expensive as it's become more popular among tourists and cruise ship passengers, and et cetera. And I think a lot of people, you know, this was the only home that this is the only place in the world that they wanted to live. And Big Pine was one of the only places they could afford to live, you know, in trailers or in these sort of downstairs enclosures, sort of small uh, structures that go below elevated homes. Uh, And all this stuff was wiped out after the Keys or after uh, Hurricane Irma hit the Keys. And it it seemed pretty clear to people pretty fast that this was not going to come back. I mean, the state was not interested in having people rebuild these very, very vulnerable trailer parks, you know, on an island that's perpetually subject to potential hurricanes. Uh, and flooding. And so it was pretty clear that, that the era of sort of affordable, sort of rough and tumble Big Pine Key had ended basically overnight for a lot of people, although many people do still live there. And for some people, that was really, really hard to take. And there was depression and, and self-harm and suicide because mm. people's world had just vanished uh, out from underneath them. Wow. And also just what it does to communities. You write about Mike who showed up after the recession in a homeless shelter in Marathon. He was blind, and when he first arrived at the shelter, he couldn't take a shower or put on clothes without assistance. After a year, he started to teach kids in an after-school program how to play chess, and he became an integral part of the community. But after the devastation happened, the shelters reached capacity. People were given basically bus tickets to go to Georgia, North Carolina, and Virginia, And Mike got a ticket to Minnesota where he grew up and he couldn't come back. And, uh, you know, someone said, you have to ask yourself, do you ever recover from something like this? Yeah, I mean, I think that that it's worth emphasizing that it's very, very difficult to be in these places after a disaster like this. It's just it like it's like I said, it's psychologically really damaging. It's also extremely expensive. It's also sometimes very dangerous. People are very opportunistic. And a lot of people just don't have it in them to stay in those places and they can't afford to. And so in the case of the Keys, which are, you know, a very, very difficult place to evacuate, there's one road to the mainland and you can't really stay on the islands during a hurricane. It's extremely unsafe. It was very, it was very, very difficult. You know, people had about 72 hours to get out of 
the keys and there wasn't a lot of places that they could go. And so they said, well, we just have to send you to wherever you can go as long as you're not here. Right. And then I think Mike knew probably after the storm that it was not going to be safe or easy for him to come back. And maybe he waited. Right. And wanted to come back eventually and just sort of never worked out. And that's true for a lot of people. They just lose their grip on the places that they're closest to. And it's very, very difficult for them to handle and very, very difficult for them to move past emotionally and psychologically. Right. Well, let's hear from a caller in Florida. Let's go to Peter. Hi, Peter. Thanks for calling. Thank you for answering. Yeah, but I, I'm not in Florida Keys. I mean, I didn't even know that whole story, but uh, that's uh, that's horrible. People committed suicide uh, the, the cost of displacement. But what what I thought was, Rose, because you mentioned, because uh, I had listened to that story on, on NPR this morning, and besides having the wrong language, like talking about, you know, climate change versus climate catastrophe, was, uh, I like the expression when, when she said it's like a, like an American tourist in Paris who just thinks if they speak slow enough and loud enough, the person will understand them. I related to that, and I thought, and isn't that like a lot, a lot of what we go through in communicating with people, especially like where the position you're in, Rose, is that it's so obvious. Maybe if I just say it slower and louder, but the communication isn't a matter of that. It's like you're not speaking their language. How do you feel about that? Do you feel like, you, did you relate to that being in that position on the radio? Uh, well, I mean, we think about language a lot, how to talk about the climate crisis. I mean, we've gone from climate change to climate crisis. And then um, this morning on NPR, uh, Susan Joy Hassel with Climate Communication says we need to call it human-induced climate change. Um, Jake, what are your thoughts on these issues? We briefly touched on it earlier. Yeah, I mean, I think that for a long time, it was really, really difficult. Scientists, especially, and activists had a lot of trouble getting climate change to break through as a as a mainstream issue, right? And so there was a lot of focus on, well, perhaps we need to to educate people by using the right words uh, to make sure that, that people understand. I think that's definitely important. Although, you know, I think there's also a lot of difficulty, you know, there's a lot of as you know, intractable political division in this country. And I do think that for some people, there's a lot of resistance to really any any formula, any version of this. But it has changed over the past, you know, 20, 30 years. There is a lot more awareness and a, a lot more um, emotional uh, priority around uh, the issue of climate change now than there has been in the past. And I think that because of the sort of drumbeat of coverage from the media and because people have taken steps like you know, connecting weather disasters to the combustion of fossil fuels. There's probably a lot more public awareness now than there was in the past. People have a much more defined idea of what it is that's actually happening. You know, they don't just think day after tomorrow, you know, a giant tidal wave, the world's going to blow up. They think, okay, it's because we burn oil and gas, the world gets warmer because of the greenhouse effect. And that has all these really, really nasty consequences. So I think that language is really important. And changes in language and emphasis on the language of climate change, climate crisis has probably helped increase public awareness of it over the past decade or so. You know, given that in the Florida Keys, all of the islands could be underwater by the end of the century. What's going on with the politics in Florida? I mean, to think of Governor DeSantis, what's getting the most attention now is that he's going after African-American studies, gender studies, and supporting horrific anti-trans bills. So what is DeSantis doing about this crisis in Florida? You know, this is actually a really, really interesting case study, because as you know, DeSantis has he's not only done all the stuff with uh, transgender issues and with African-American studies. He's also gone after what he calls woke banks, right? Banks that want to boycott or, you know, disinvest from fossil fuels as he sees it. He says, well, you can't do that. You can't do what's called environmental, social and governance investing. But also he has uh, introduced a $1 billion plus program called Resilient Florida to fund these sort of resilience measures to help places like the Keys and Miami prepare for rising sea levels and prepare for flooding. And I think there's a really, really important point to be made here, which is that protecting against flooding and protecting against the damages caused by climate change is very popular among people of both parties, especially people who live in flood prone areas. And these resilience measures enjoy bipartisan support, even in the U.S. Congress in a lot of cases. And DeSantis himself, you know, probably the the standard bearer of the conservative movement right now, has 
put a lot of money into that uh, with help of the Republican-dominated Florida legislature. But you just don't call it climate change. He doesn't connect it to climate change. And so you can help people protect their property values, make sure that they can stay in Florida, but you don't have to connect it to fossil fuels in his view, right? And I think that's a really, really interesting point. And this is true in Louisiana as well. Republican politicians support these resilience measures and they support adapting to climate change as long as you don't talk about climate change. Hmm. Well, in our remaining minute, given that Republicans control so many states, how will that trickle down to affect people who need help the most, people who have no choice but to flee and sometimes leave the state? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really, really difficult question and a tough one to answer right now. But I do think that the solution to this has to come from the federal government and it has to come from Congress because states and cities just don't have enough money uh, to help people in the way that they need. You know, the, giving people vouchers to, to leave their homes and find other ones, you know, building these giant seawalls or fixing, you know, streets to become uh, less prone to flooding. This is really, really, really expensive stuff. And because states and cities tend to have to balance their budgets, they can't make these big expenditures and they really need help from the federal government. So that's going to be incumbent on Congress, I think, to put more money into this and to figure out what works and prioritize that over the next 10 years. Jake Biddle is a staff writer at Grist, where he covers climate change. His new book is The Great Displacement, Climate Change and the Next American Migration. Jake, thank you so much for writing such an important book. We would love to have you back to talk about the many chapters that we didn't get to. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You can find more about Jake Biddle's work at yourcallradio.org. Thanks to Malihe Razazan for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. You can find today's show and all of our past shows at yourcallradio.org. You can also sign up for our podcast there. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's Your Calls, One Planet series. 